Well, let's get rolling. For those of you that braved the cold, you're going to be glad you did, because i got some fun stuff to show you. Um, we're going to pick up in, in Daniel chapter 3 today. We left off going through Daniel. Remember what we're doing? We're in this series called the Emmaus Road. I'm sure you remember that because we've been doing it all year. But we're trying to find Christ in the Old Testament and things like that. Now, the book of Daniel, every time the book of Daniel is taught pretty much exhaustively, it is all about the prophetic nature of it. Right, and it's incredibly prophetic. I mean, you said you you taught through it here before too, and I'm sure it took several weeks because there is no small way to do the book of Daniel. We're trying to give a synopsis of it. We're actually avoiding the prophetic stuff pretty much for time's sake because we're going to move on with other stuff, and that's really not the nature of the exercise we're trying to do. But what we're trying to show is how all of this is leading up to the Messiah arriving, which is this time of year that we celebrate. And what we don't realize, and I really do feel that this is somewhat divinely inspired, because when I first started this series, in no way did I think that at this point in the year, we'd only be in Daniel. In fact, I'd planned to finish this series up at the end of March, and here we are, December. We're doing well. We're right on time. We're running off of Isaac's schedule. That's what we're doing. No, I'm just teasing. But, but, I didn't plan on being here, but it's interesting, and you will hear this. You need to be here Christmas Eve. You do not want to miss this, because I'm going to show you how what's taking place right now in the book of Daniel is instrumental to what we see in the Christmas story. And it's often overlooked, and a lot of times we don't realize it because we're not connecting the dots, and I'm going to connect the dots for you. Isn't that nice of me? Yeah, yes it is. I'm a pretty all right guy. So where we left off last week is, if you recall, Nebuchadnezzar, right? Every time I say that name, somebody immediately goes to VeggieTales, immediately, right? You're thinking the chocolate bunnies, that's where we go. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. He took took up after his father, uh, who had died while he was actually taking over Jerusalem. He's he's under siege. He rushes back to take over because his father was killed. Why did he rush back? Because he wanted to make sure there was no overthrow to the kingdom, that it was a familial line. And so he is in charge. Now, he is a bad dude, not a good guy, not a friendly guy. He would roast his own officers if they didn't do what he he said, as well as their families. He would, when he took over someplace, he'd take the king, and he would murder all of his family in front of him. Then he would gouge out his eyes, and then later he would murder him, right? Nice guy, right? As well as several other things. But if you recall, God had given him a dream. And when this dream came in, he's freaked out by it. He's panicked. You know, he doesn't understand it. So he calls all of the soothsayers, the astrologers, they said the Chaldeans. Now, Chaldeans can be both ethnic and it can be, it's also a a terminology used for what we call wise men. Okay. That's what the scriptures call them as well. And so he calls them all in there and they say, well, tell us the dream and, and we will tell you what it means. Right. Nothing could necessarily go wrong with something situation like that. Right. Do you guys remember the cult that was going on in, in down in Fall City in the Rulo area back in the 80s? Right. Michael Ryan. There's a book called Evil Harvest that was written all about this. We had just moved to Nebraska when this all was taking place. But I've read the book. I have the book. It's quite interesting. But here's how Michael Ryan, the leader of this cult, did it. The people would come to him and ask what God's will was in a situation. So Michael would put his hand out. Now, and this may be backwards, but it was basically this. If his hand went up, then God said yes. If his hand went down, then God said no. And that's how they decided what to do next. Now, that can't possibly be manipulated in any way, right? Right. Same thing here. If he tells them the dream, he doesn't know the meaning of it. They can say whatever they want. And these are not his guys. These are his father's advisors. 
He wants to make sure they're in the up and up. So they say, well, we can't tell you. We don't know anything um, until you tell us the dream. He doesn't want to tell them the dream. He wants them to tell him what the dream was and then tell him the interpretation. In comes Daniel, right? They're upset. Everybody wants, they're killing all the wise men, which would be Daniel and all of that. Daniel says, I can do this. They go to God in prayer. God gives him the vision. They go to the king. He not only tells him what it was, he gives him the interpretation. And you remember, we talked about the different kingdoms that were coming. It was this great statue made of different materials. You had the Babylonians, you had the Medes and the Persians, which you're going to see that today. Later on, you'll see the Greeks will come in and take over, and then ultimately Rome. And then many believe that the last portion of that will be Rome 2.0 or whatever, but be that as it may. And so he is so blown away by this, that Daniel's ability to interpret this dream, he says, there's no other way besides your God that does this. Daniel chapter 2, verse 46, this is what he said. Now this is amazing. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering, an incense to him. And the king answered Daniel and said, truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal the secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. To realize the incredibleness of it, this is a pagan king who worships Marduk as well as other false gods, and yet he is singing praises to Yahweh. Why? Because of the signs, the wonders, and the miracles. That's why. He was so blown away by this that he makes Daniel the chief administrator over what? The wise men. Okay, I keep dropping hints to where we're going Christmas Eve. Just remember that. He promotes Daniel. He's leader over the whole area of Babylon. He's the chief admin over all the wise men. And then what does he do? He immediately petitions the king for a position for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now remember, that is their Babylonian name. That is not their Hebrew name. Okay? Now, let's go into Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Okay? Remember, we... There's some time in between here, but this is where we left off with Nebuchadnezzar's attitude. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, boy that went fast, whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Wouldn't it have been easier if they just said, hey, and all those guys showed up, but whatever. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried out, to you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, That at the time that you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace." Now, as I said, some time has elapsed between chapter 2 and chapter 3. This is not the next day. In fact, they think there's several years in between here. In fact, much of Daniel is not chronology, just so you know. 
Chapter 7 might be before chapter 4 and, and vice versa, things like that. Those are just arbitrary numbers I'm throwing out there. Not literally, don't write that down. But you see a major contrast in his attitude. Because at the end of chapter 2, what's he doing? He is praising Yahweh. Yours is the God of God, the Lord of the kings, yours. And, and yet here we got, he's immediately creating an image out of gold that he's requiring everybody to worship. Remember, Babylon at this point is the nation of Babylon, and it is massive. Under the Persians, it's going to be much larger, but it is massive. So what was this idol? We don't know for sure. Some speculate that it was of himself. That's possible, but I doubt it possible but it doesn't say that it was him and I would think they would have said that it's very likely Marduk or somebody else we don't know for sure some even speculate that it was what he saw in his dream whatever that was whatever that image looked like because we're just it's all speculation we don't know but what changed between chapters 2 and chapter 3 why such a shift in his attitude scripture doesn't tell us but history kind of does, because in between this time, somewhere in around 596 B.C., there was this uprising, this revolt inside of Babylon. Most assumed that it was the Jews that were doing this, that were refusing to do anything. They didn't want to be subservient to Nebuchadnezzar or to the Babylonian kingdom. In fact, from what they say is they've got other people outside of the Jewish heritage that were also on board with this. There was just this revolt going on in the kingdom. So they had to squash it, and they did. They put everybody down. And at this point, they're saying that this is a sign of solidarity inside the kingdom, that we are all going to worship one God. We're going to worship this guy, this image. This is why we're going to fall down here. It's kind of a pledging of allegiance, if you will is what they say. Now, is that necessarily the reason? I don't know for sure because it doesn't tell us, but it's a good possibility. So, when they come up with this idea, if I had to guess of the individuals who came up with the idea, it was the rivals of Daniel and the boys because remember, Nebuchadnezzar put them in charge over all the Chaldeans, over all these other guys. You think they're happy about that? You think, oh, we've got a new boss. Oh, and he's a Jew. He's not even Babylonian. He's not one of us. He's outside of it. And so I imagine that they likely got in the ear of the king to promote this idea, showing the solidarity in the nation, knowing full well that there's no way that Daniel or the other guys are going to bow down and worship this because they are devoted to Yahweh. So that's what I think. Now, this, this thing, you need to picture this thing, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide. A cubit as a basic measurement is 18 inches. It's from the elbow to the tip of the fingers. Obviously, Paul's cubit would be much larger than my cubit, right? right? Paul's cubit is probably somewhere about 30 feet long. I don't know, something like that. When Paul gets cold outside, he just reaches up and touches the sun, warms his hands up. No big deal. But this thing would be about 90 feet tall, 9 feet at its base, so it's very huge. You could see this thing from miles, and it says it's solid gold. Some speculate that it was made from wood and, and covered in gold, possibly, but it doesn't say that. We imagine it's solid gold, because remember, they had some money. This is the Babylonian kingdom. Not only did they have their own wealth, but they took all the wealth from the Jews when they took over Judah. So, you probably could see this thing from a long ways away, and when that sound heard, everybody turned and faced it, bowed down before it, and worshipped it, just like you see with Muslims today. And honestly, you see it, and you're going to see it with Daniel momentarily, is that he would go and he would face Jerusalem whenever he prayed and bow down. Wasn't an uncommon thing. So at the moment that you hear these horns, you turn and you bow to it. But what was the punishment if you didn't? Fiery furnace. But was there a trial? 
No, it's immediately. In other words, if you get caught not doing this, you go. That's it. End of story. There's no trial. There's not a jury of your peers. There's nothing. There's no second chance. They grab you. They take you. They toast you. That's it. All right, verse 7. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, and all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now they put it into practice. Here it is. Here's the music. They bow down. Everybody does, except a few. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. This is why I think they set this up, and that's why I think these guys were in the year of the king, because immediately as soon as this happens, they're right there. The Chaldeans come forward. These are the ones that Daniel and the boys are in charge of. Daniel specifically, right? They're not happy about the situation being ruled by the Jews. So they come immediately and they tattle on the boys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. It's almost like being in a a daycare or something. So they basically did this whole thing, in my opinion. This is simply my opinion. It's worth exactly what you're about to pay for just to set these guys up to get them out of there because they're not happy about it. Let's look at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you should be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you? From my hands. Now let's pause here for a moment because often we overlook this. What was the punishment for not doing it? It was being thrown in the furnace, right? What kind of trial did you get or second chance? None. But Nebuchadnezzar is giving them a second chance. That shows you that in his heart he cared about these guys. They meant something to him because of what they had done previously. He's breaking his own law by giving them a second chance. Now, under Babylonian rule, the king was the law. It didn't matter what he said. He could make a law for everybody else. He didn't have to obey it. So here we see this. This is interesting. He's like, now, we're going to do this again, boys. And if you do it, life is well. Peace be with you. If not, you're out. Now, how the boys respond is quite interesting. Watch this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, and we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. They tell him off, and he said, if God is able to defend us, great, but if he's not, that's okay. Right? Is that what it says? Nope. That's not 
what it says. See, I'm going to take this moment to undo a bad, bad teaching out there because this passage is one of the that is often used, saying that God is completely sovereign. We don't know what His will is. You might get healed, you might not. If it be thy will, God will pray for it, but if not, when you read this quickly, you'll miss the nuance. Okay, if that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the biring furnace, right? And He will deliver us from hell. But if not, that if not is not if not God can deliver us. It's if you choose not to throw us into the furnace. Because watch what it says after it. We do not serve your gods, nor will we worship. If they're thrown into the furnace, there's no more opportunity to fall before their gods. You guys see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Let me do that again. Okay? If that is the case, if what is the case? If that you're going to make us fall down before. If that is the case, if you're going to make us do this, we're not going to do it. Because our God, He can deliver us. But if not, if not, in other words, you're going to uh, make us do this, or not make us do this, whatever, let it be known to you, we will not serve your gods. In other words, think about it, just from the language itself, disbunks that whole idea. The if not has not, whether God can or cannot, God can, and these boys knew it. They knew that he could, and they knew that he would. Because they said, our God is able, and he will deliver us. Now, he might, he will deliver us. But if not, in other words, if not, if you choose not to make us do this, and you choose not to throw us into the furnace, we will not serve your gods. How do we know that's what they're talking about? Because if they get thrown in the furnace, there is no opportunity to worship his gods. You guys see how that works? This gets thrown out there a lot, and when you read it quickly, it's easy to get caught up in that. This is one of the main verses that gets used when they go to the Old Testament about God's sovereignty, and we don't know his will. We do know his will. We have it written down, right? This is his will. He's there. You guys with me on that? Everybody understand that? Because I don't want to leave you behind. Okay, very good. Common misconception. Now, they often use this as a t- thing saying that if the boys are waffling and all of that, don't ever fall for that. All right, verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace was exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar's ticked off. He gave them a second chance. He doesn't give second chances. It's not in his nature. It's not his character. And he gave them a second chance, and they still refused, and now he's mad. If one thing you could say about Nebuchadnezzar, the man was prideful. And so in a fit of rage, which was typical, he orders them to be thrown in. But this happened hastily. He wants that thing heated up seven times. It says his expression changed towards them. In other words, his love and compassion for them was over. They had the chance to obey. They didn't. They leaves them fully dressed. They didn't make them naked or anything. They're all tied up. And the furnace is so hot that it kills the guys enacting the punishment, basically. It says that it was seven times hotter. Now, some say that that's simply an analogy. They found different of these types of uh, furnaces in, in archaeology and things like that. They say, well, it's not possible to do that. You guys, I'm telling you, the Babylonians were smart. 
okay? I'm pretty sure they could figure out how to make it seven times hotter. And these things were used to melt gold and different metals and things like that. They weren't just for cooking people, just so you know. And this wasn't a backyard barbecue, all right? But seven times hotter. It kills the guys they throw them in. Watch verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselor, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, and they're walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. He's shocked. Not only are they in there, but it's almost like they're enjoying it. They're walking around. Like right now, a little fiery furnace outside doesn't sound so shabby, does it? You know, they're out there walking around, and he sees this form and says, it's like the Son of God. Now some, remember, this part is written in Aramaic, and it may say sons of God, because they don't have the language usage referring to Jesus that the way we do. This is how it gets translated. But in his eyes, there's something special down there, whether he realizes it's Jesus or not, we know who it was. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, now pause there, where did he go near? The furnace, right? That same mouth that just killed the guys throwing them in. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose body the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made in ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now this is powerful, guys, majorly powerful everyone is standing around at this point so the governor the satraps they're standing around they're in utter shock they don't know what to do because it says their fire didn't even touch their clothes their hair wasn't even singed they weren't burnt at all in fact they don't even smell like smoke now take it from a guy who likes to play with his barbecue a little bit you smell like smoke I'll tell you a funny story. We, you know, we do a pizza party every month for the grade school. And I show up early and I get everything set up. And one of the cleaning ladies had come in. And she's like, man, this room stinks. And I'm like, really? I didn't notice it. And she's like, yeah, it smells like, like, like a cleaner or something. Some, some like carcinogen. And I'm like, huh, I don't smell it. And she's like, huh. Well, she grabs another teacher and she brings her in. And she's like, you smell that? And she's like, yeah. It smells like, like charcoal or something. And I'm standing there, and it dawned on me, I was cooking barbecue that day. I'd been out there. I'm like, oh, that's me. <laughs> Sorry about that. Of course, the lady was embarrassed because she just basically told me I smelled bad, but whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, there's no way you get around it. I mean, you're around smoke. You smell like smoke. But they didn't smell like smoke. But then this same pagan guy or king who had worshipped Yahweh before, now he's back. It's the reversal of the decree he had made previously. He said, all nations... Tri uh, tribes, tongues, people, everybody. You'll worship when you hear the sound. You'll worship this image. Now it's like you will worship God. 
Because only he could do this. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we know who this is because he says there's no God but Yahweh. There's only one. This is powerful. I said you'll be killed if you speak against him. Powerful story. And so, of course, what do they do? They, they, they threaten. He's like, okay, now you speak out against Yahweh. We're going to cut you in little pieces and we're going to take care of you. Typical Nebuchadnezzar. Powerful story, right? The story we've heard our entire life. But I've got a question for you. Because sometimes when you're reading something, we see the things on the page and we take the answers just from that. You know, and then sometimes because we read quickly, or usually, here's the case, we get taught something incorrectly, and then we read that into it every time, much like the verse I showed you before, because I know most of you, if not all of you, have heard that at some point or another. Um, we see that. But sometimes there's something called a remez, R-E-M-E-Z. In other words, it's almost like a sign that says, dig a little deeper. It's used by uh, Jewish rabbis and scholars and stuff. In other words, God's trying to make a bigger point here. There's something that you, that, that's missing that we miss is where the heck is Daniel? Yeah, where is he at? Why is he not here? Well, it leaves us with only a couple of options. Most of them don't make sense. Okay, first one, he was, he actually bowed down to the image. We know Daniel's not going to do that, right? We know that, Okay. The other one is, is, is that, you know, he's just off and he's just hiding or something like that. I mean, they come up with all these excuses. Here's what I think's happened is honestly, from a practical standpoint, remember what Daniel's on. He was chief over the province. I bet he's on some mission for Nebuchadnezzar. I bet he's not in town. And that's why these boys took the opportunity when they did, because they didn't have Daniel. What you'll notice is Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar are close. And you'll see that here momentarily, but they are very close. But, so he's likely out on this diplomatic mission, no question about it. But there's a pattern that kind of develops here. When we talk about, um, you know, some of the prophetic significance here, I'm going to share this with you, okay, very briefly, because I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. Um, you go home, do your own homework, come to your own opinions on it. I don't want to say this is necessarily my opinion, but it is intriguing nonetheless. You see, there's always something that's kind of undergirding that you pick up on these patterns. In, in the Hebrew mindset, prophecy is patterns. It's patterns of development that take place. So let me give you an example. And we've talked about this before. The story of Abraham and Isaac, right? God tells him to sacrifice Isaac. He says, okay, I'll be obedient. When did Isaac die in his mind? That moment. Why? Because he's going to be obedient to God. No question in his mind. And he knows that no matter what happens, that God is going to have to bring Isaac back from the dead. He's going to have to resurrect him because he promised that Isaac was going to have children. God doesn't break his word. So they go up on the mountain. They're there. They leave the servants behind. They go up on the mountain and they enact this thing. And Isaac's like, well, where's the lamb? Where are we going to do it? And Abraham says that God will provide himself a lamb for us. Not provide a lamb for himself, himself a lamb. It's kind of undergirding that he is in this. And he goes to act it out. We know the story, right? The ram shows up. They sacrifice it. Abraham goes down from the mountain. But from that moment on, you notice that Isaac is missing from the story. He's not talked about going back down the mountain. Says Abraham. Then he hooks up with the two servants. And they bomb a moose. They're gone. Right? Where's Isaac. He's not there. Well, that's interesting. Isaac doesn't come back into the picture until Abraham sends this unnamed servant to go get him a bride for Isaac. And then at that marriage, Isaac comes back into the picture. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because the pattern of this develops is that Christ, 
died in our behalf and was resurrected. And now he is out of the picture from the story that's going on right here directly until the Holy Spirit raptures his bride back to him. We know the servant's name is Eleazar because it tells us previously, but in that story, it doesn't. You guys kind of see how that picture lines up exactly with the gospel story and the future events. Here you have another example of that because they'll say that Daniel is the church. Daniel represents the church. The three youth, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, represent the 144,000 that are in the book of Revelation. Nebuchadnezzar would be a picture of the Antichrist. And what are they doing? They're forcing one religion and to force this image. And what would the fiery furnace be? The tribulation. But that 144,000 that will go through the tribulation will be spared by God supernaturally. And they're saying Daniel has been removed because of what? The rapture prior to the tribulation and the Antichrist coming in. You guys see that pattern there? Now, is somebody reading way too much into this? It's possible. It's very possible, but I just, I find it intriguing because Daniel is the center stone of this entire book, and yet he's missing from chapter three, and I don't think that's on accident. Holy Spirit doesn't do things accidentally. Okay, so now chapter four, when you get into this, there's a couple of things I want to point out. We're not going to go through all of it because it's about this dream that he has, but I want you to notice something. Who wrote chapter four of the book of Daniel, right? We assume Daniel. Let's read it. Chapter four. 4 verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king, do all peoples, nations, and language that dwell in the earth peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the most guy, high God has worked for me. Who wrote chapter 4? Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, wrote a chapter in your Bible. Isn't that intriguing? It's written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. What happens in this is he has this vision of this great tree, and this thing is huge, and it gets cut down, and, and later it regrows, and Daniel said, this is about you. This is about him, that he gets so big and stuff that God cuts him down and humbles him. And basically, in this story, Nebuchadnezzar goes nuts for seven years. It talks about he's out in the field, he's eating grass and all of this other stuff. I mean, it's crazy. You need to go read it. It's just for time's sake that we're not. But watch his response at the end of this exercise or whatever you want to call it watch how he responds verse 24 of Daniel chapter 4 or excuse me verse 34 not 24 and at the end of the time I Nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me no longer crazy and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done at that at the time? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor was returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. This is the pagan king who created an image for all people to worship. He tried to basically sacrifice the boys that didn't want to do it. He writes a chapter in your Bible, and it's all about his story and how he is praising God. And this is the reason that it would not shock me one bit that when we get to heaven, we meet Mr. Nebuchadnezzar. Crazy to think of. You didn't pick that one up from Veggie Tales, did you? 
I mean, it's just crazy, folks. It's amazing. But why did he do it? He humbled him. Now, during this time, it's, it's pretty much believed that Daniel was there with Nebuchadnezzar during that seven-year period taking care of him day in and day out. They were very, very close. So now we're going to jump to chapter 5. Verse 1, Belshazzar, the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Now, this gets some confusion here because his name is Belshazzar. The, he, or the, Greek, the Babylonian name that Daniel was given is Belteshazzar. Okay? Similar, but not the same. He is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he is not the king, but he is more like the chief prince here. His father is the king, and we'll talk about him in a little bit. The reason it says father, and you'll notice that all through, that in Aramaic and in Hebrew, there is no word for grandfather. So it's always father. It can mean a, a generational thing. But what are they doing? He's up there. He's having a good old time. And they are haphazardly handling all the things that belonged in the temple that the Nebuchadnezzar would take. But what's not stated here and what's underlying is that in this moment, Cyrus and the Persians are taking over the kingdom of Babylon. Now, a number of commentaries will assume that a great battle took place and that's how the Persians rule. Actually, there was no battle. And there was no war. There was nothing. What happens is while they're in there having a good old time, Cyrus sets up in the northern part by the Euphrates River and they divert it. They make it go somewhere else. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal until you realize that the Euphrates River was a protection thing used by the Babylonians to keep people out. By diverting it, it makes the water low. And what happens is these guys basically crawl under the gate and they begin to take over the king and nobody has any idea because normally I mean it's like when you see in the old movies they roll up to the to the side of the castle or whatever they start slinging cannonballs over and shooting arrows and all that stuff none of this is going on they're sneaking in they uh conquer Babylon without a battle that doesn't happen very often and what happens is that while they're taking over is most people don't even realize it's happening including our buddy here Belshazzar now Babylon refers to the city here, okay? But it's going to be a part of the Persian kingdom. Belshazzar is in charge of the city of Babylon, not necessarily the whole kingdom. All right. Daniel 5, verse 5. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote, and the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him. So that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. Now picture this. They're drinking. They're having a good time. They're partying it up. Why? Because they're Babylon. They can do whatever they want. And all of a sudden, a hand appears and starts carving stuff into the wall. Now, it says here, and it's, it's, I think it's an attempt by the modern translation to soften what's going on here. But I think the King James says it a little better. I don't, I don't have that here, but I'm going to tell you what it means. But how his countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him and the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked and all of that. What it actually seems to be saying in the Aramaic here is that his uh, bowels were loosened, if you know what I mean. In other words, uh, bring him a fresh pair of britches. 
he's, he's going to need. He's freaking out. And I don't know about you, but he's well within his right because there's a hand carving stuff in the wall not attached to anybody. It's a magic hand. It freaked me out too, okay? Just so you know. Verse 6. Then the king cried aloud and, and, the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldean, and the soothsayers. These are all titles of these different people, and they would overlap a lot. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation, shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known the king and its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall, and the queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. And as much as an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Who did the king call for? The wise men, right? He offers to make one of them the third ruler in the kingdom. Why the third? Because he is the second. His father is actually the king. Okay, it's not spoken there, but his father's name was Nabonidus, and he is the king. Now, he brings in these guys, and they can't do anything, and so the queen comes up with an idea. She goes to him, she's like, I remember this one guy who was in charge of all the wise men that was there when your grandfather was there, and he can do this because the Spirit of God is with him. So he calls for Daniel, and he offers him all sorts of gifts, and said, Daniel, if you'll do this, I'll give you this, and all of that. Watch Daniel's response, verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing on the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. Who gave him the kingdom? God did. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, Whoever he wished, he set up, and whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was disposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Now, this is the part we're talking about in chapter 4, okay? Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast, and his dwelling was like the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. I'm going to attempt to pronounce these, but mean, mean, tekel, up Harrison. If you got a better one, way to say it, good for you. Verse 26. This is the interpretation of each word. Mean, God has numbered your kingdom and finish it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, which is the up Harrison, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. 
Then Belshazzar gave command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. All right, now let's unpack this a bit. First of all, he says, I'm going to give you guys everything. Daniel says, I don't want it. You keep it for yourself. I'm able to do this because of God. He tells the story about Nebuchadnezzar when he goes nuts. And like I said, most people believe during this time that Daniel was right there with him, taking care of him and, and you know, feeding him and all of that. But it's, all of this is going on because Belshazzar has refused to humble himself before God, even though he knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Didn't matter. So because of this, he's going to be removed. And those three words, Mene, Tekel, and Perez, what we don't know, and it would, this requires a little study, is these are measurements of weight that are used on scales. That's what they were. And so by saying this is that the scales have been weighted, you're out. That's what these things were. Now, what's interesting here, and as I said, at this point, they are coming in. Babylon fell on the 16th of the Babylonian month of Teshrit. Babylonians would typically and traditionally link this month with the constellation of the scales, the modern-day Libra, right? If you guys know anything about astrology, that's what it was. And so every year, this appearance, this annual appearance in the night sky was the first time associated with the middle of this month of Teshrit. And the court astrologers would know this and would have been a confirmation to them of exactly what Daniel was saying because it's falling on the very day that they see the scales in the sky. And he uses the measurements that they use as the scales. Again, not a coincidence. God knows what he's doing. The one thing that we need to understand is that God meets people where they are and uses things that they understand to reach them. Okay. Now, the Medes and the Persians would take over the... Babylon kingdom here uh, momentarily, but he's going to make Daniel third ruler overall. Now watch what's there's 31. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. I mean, this is momentary, the prophecy to what takes place, because God knew what was going on. So you get done. We're done. The Babylonians, they're done. The Medes and the Persians take over. This guy named Darius now, he's over Babylon, not all of Persia, as I said. Cyrus is the king over all Persia. But Babylon is basically a city. Persia is the kingdom, okay? Babylon was once the kingdom. The Persian kingdom is, is much, much larger, and Babylon was huge. Now, when it comes to the Persians, they had a different set of rules on how they did things. When the king makes a law, the king himself is bound by this law. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't that case. He was the judge, the jury, and the executioner. He can make a law, but he doesn't have to follow. And we saw that with the three boys. Why? He gave them a second chance. That wasn't part of the law. What he said went. He could choose to follow it, not follow it. Didn't matter. It was up to him. He's the king. But the Persian dynasty lived by different set of rules. And the law was the law, and the king was subject to it. And when something was decreed, there was no going back. And this is leading us into chapter 6, and I'm trying to hurry so we can get out of here in a decent time. Here we go, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them, so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge of fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. 
Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Now, Daniel's a governor. There's three of them. Darius is thinking about making him the, the chief guy over everybody. Daniel here is about 83 years old. He's an old man. There's a lot of time passed. Remember, he's been in the public office here for 66 years. He was brought into Babylon as a teenager. And so he rises the prime minister of Babylon. He was very close with Nebuchadnezzar. And as been to the case in the past, what happens? Cream rises to the top. There's something special about Daniel. And again, you'll notice the, the nuances between he and Joseph. Nothing negative is ever said about them. Now, Darius is pleased with them, thinking about putting him in charge of everything, which, of course, does not sit well with the other governors. Now, the Jews are not Babylonians, nor are they Persians, and, of course, they've been exiled there, and so they don't want anyone in charge of them, let alone a Jewish man. And so they attempt to find something that they can use against him, but, of course, they can't find anything because he obeyed the rules. But they knew that if they were going to catch him in anything, it had to pertain to the worship of Yahweh because there was one thing that Daniel would not compromise on, and that was it. He would not compromise in that situation. Verse 6. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators, the satraps, the counselors, and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish a decree and sign the writing that so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persian, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius, sign the written decree. So all these guys come together to come up with this great plan. 30 days. Nobody does anything but worships what you say, King Darius. That's it. But you notice that there was one of the three governors that were missing. It's Daniel. Now, Darius should have picked up on that. Something nefarious. Because why? They're setting him up. So you would think Darius would have noticed because he cares about Daniel. You'd think he'd want his opinion. But for whatever reason, made, Darius goes with it. And again, it said according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which means this cannot be changed. This is it. So if somebody doesn't do this, this is the end of the line. Watch verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, This thing is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, for you, for the, or for the decree that you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. You notice that it says Daniel knew the decree was signed. What did he do? He went home and prayed. He broke the decree. It didn't say that he didn't know it was going on. He knew it was happening. He didn't care. He did not care what the law was, and this was not a move out of spite or anything like that, but it is a move out of faithfulness to Yahweh. It should be a sign to us. He's going to obey God. Now the satraps, they sit around just waiting for Daniel to do it. Why? Because he did it every day. He'd been doing it since he was young. So they knew it was going to happen. He's going to go home and pray. As soon as he does, they approach the king, and they first, well, you notice how they do, they set this up. 
They start him off with reminding him what the law was. Do you remember you made this decree, right? He's like, oh, yes, yes, according to the law, the means of purchase can't be undone. Like, okay, good, Daniel screwed it up. And what happens? Darius at this point realizes what is going on. He'd been set up. He didn't realize it before, but he realizes now. He loves Daniel. He was thinking about making him a ruler over everything, and yet now he is he's between a rock and a hard place. He has no choice but to bring this punishment on Daniel. It says he sat up all night trying to figure out a way that around this, of course, to no avail. Verse 14. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Now remember, that's what I was talking about. Okay? So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. They show up the next day. Once again, remember, king, this can't be undone. It's the law. It's the way it is. So Daniel's got to go to the lion's den. He has no choice. He's stuck. So they throw him in there. But the king makes one more statement. He says, your God will deliver you. He doesn't say, I hope your God can handle this. I hope God sees you in this thing and will bring you out of it. He's confident in this. Now, this is quite a statement, again, coming from a pagan king. And I'm sure he knew about it. I mean, you think about it. His confidence is in, in Yahweh, is in God. But I'm sure he knew about the story of the fiery furnace. I have no doubt about it. I have no doubt in my mind that this got back to him. So they roll the stone in place, and they seal it with the king's ring as well as the other lords. Why do they do this? Because if one of the guards walks by and sees that seal broken, they know that it's been tampered with, and somebody has let him out. Okay? Verse 18. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. And no musicians were brought before him, and also his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. So that they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent before him, and also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him, and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatsoever was found on him, because he believed in his God. So now look what happened. Darius is up all night long. He's fasting. Why? He's, he's hoping that this will change something. And his musicians were not brought to him. Right? You know, some of y'all watch TV at night or maybe listen to your radio as you're trying to fall asleep. This is their version of that. He doesn't want any of it. He is completely tormented. He cared about Daniel and he knew this is bad because he is bound by this law, the law of the Medes and the Persian. And a little fact of irony here, think about this for a minute. I bet Daniel got a better night's sleep than Darius did. Don't think about that, but I bet he did. So first thing in the morning, Darius rushes to lion's den and he yells, did God deliver you? And what does Daniel yell back? Yup, I'm good. Why did God deliver him? Because he was innocent. This wasn't a judgment. Judgment was brought by God and acted by the hands of other people. He used people all the time to enact his judgment. No, he was innocent, not only by God, but by men. But it says specifically he had no injury because he had faith in God. He believed that God could, God would, and God did. Verse 24, And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast him into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives, 
And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is a living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lion? So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now this is powerful. You notice how in the book of Daniel, it keeps talking about these signs and these wonders about God and what He does and how this was a moving thing that convinced them. We act as if that just came on the scene when Jesus shows up in the book of Matthew. This went on all the time. These signs and these wonders had a purpose. It wasn't just so you felt good. It was because it had a purpose. Is that convincing of God being God. Now, some have tried to argue here that the reason that Daniel survived is one of two reasons. can't be supernatural, right? Got to be one of two. These were old lions, right? They've been around for a while. They just didn't have the, the gusto to get up and eat Daniel. That or they'd been well fed before because, they, you know, it wasn't uncommon for several people to go in these things. Um, but the text itself kind of disputes that because he said they threw the 120 in and their families. And they devoured them and broke their bones and ate them right away. So, you know, if they're old, I don't know if they got a B12 shot or what before they threw them in there. But they found some energy. So I'm going to say they weren't old. I'm going to say this is a completely supernatural event, which is exactly what the Bible says. Now, it says an angel. Could it be the angel, which would be Christ? We don't know for sure. Wouldn't shock me at all. But... You know, what's funny about all of this is when we look at this, this, this whole thing is that we see God's hand upon all of this in this pagan nation. Now, we look at this and we see this decree made by, again, a pagan king, right? Powerful. The signs and the wonders, the power of God that nobody will speak against his name. There's something being set up here, right, that goes on well past this event. In fact, you'll see when we start talking about Cyrus in the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, and we start seeing this because this is all, again, God laying a foundation. It's amazing how this all seems to interact together. But you may be asking, what happens next? Well, you need to be here for Christmas Eve. You need to be here. You need to be here. You need to cancel your family. Family's not important. Just come because you need to hear that. Because I'm telling you, everything that we've read about is all leading up to the Christmas story. Because we all know the Christmas story, right? We've heard it a thousand times. The problem is that most of it is made out of fables and made out of hearsay and made out of other stuff that's going on, right? We have songs that are wrong. We sing them that are wrong about the story. And I'm going to share with you guys, I wanted to do this last year and the Lord told me not to, Interestingly enough, we happen to be here, so we're doing it this year. But praise the Lord. His word is true, and it is good, and it is powerful the way that He can open our eyes to His truth. Amen? Let's pray, and let's get out of here.